If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. You thought we were done. But there's one more sermon in, <laughs> in this introduction to the Beatitudes. Or introduction, I'm sorry, to the Sermon on the Mount that uh, I feel like would be helpful for us to process through. Um, just so you know where we're heading next, hopefully um, the plan for next Sunday, since we are going to be outside with all of the children, uh, will be a more abbreviated sermon. We won't have a nursery there in the woods probably, so um, something more abbreviated. The plan on the 27th is to speak to the idea of the um, the sufficiency and authority of Scripture as we prepare for our question and answer night. Um, and also that's going to lead us into our next series, which is going to be in the book of Isaiah. So we're going to try to tackle Isaiah over the course of a long time and not all in one fell swoop. We'll break it up into some smaller sections. But um, if you want to start thinking about the book of Isaiah, you can do that. That's the plan. And uh, hopefully have some tools that we can just continue to study that for the foreseeable future um, with some other series split split up in there. But for uh, this afternoon, we're again in Matthew 5. These familiar words to us even before this series, but now even more familiar to us. Let's go ahead and I'll read uh, Matthew 5 verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray once more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words of Jesus preserved for us. Pray that you would shape our lives around them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know when they hit their stride, but there were some motivational posters that I feel like were popular about one or two decades ago. And they had these beautiful pictures with bold words like teamwork or perseverance. And then they'd have a saying underneath it. Do you remember these? And they'd say things like, 
High attainment always takes place in the framework of high achievement, which I don't even know what that means, but that's one of them. Another says, don't get discouraged. It's often the last key in the bunch that opens the lock. And so they function a bit like oversized fortune cookie statements that you can hang on your office wall to inspire and motivate your fellow workers. Well, there was a group of people that I would like to hang out with some Friday evening that came up with parody posters and called them demotivational posters. Um, You can look them up. I'll just share my favorite. It has a picture of a sinking ship and says, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. (laughs) I think these posters represent um, two extremes, that of unrelenting positive thinking and success and that of total despair and failure. And often it seems that this is, these are our two options in life. Um, in our world, there's this clear line between strength and weakness, between success and failure. And there's no way that they can meet. Uh, if you want to be a person who does anything great in the world, you have to find a way to overcome your weaknesses and to avoid all failure. And that's, uh, and that's the only way that you're going to succeed. If you want to be a person of, of lasting influence, the only way is out of brokenness and into bold achievement. We often hear about success stories, yes, that, that happen after many failures, uh, but the success is what's emphasized, not the failure, right? We don't hear any stories about people that just fail over and over again. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and we considered this, this call to be salt and light in the world and the connection of that call to the, to the Beatitudes that come before it. Um, we, we said that salt, the idea of wanting to be salt, carries this idea of preservation, and light carries this idea of, of truth shining into the darkness of the world. And those metaphors announce that we who are followers of Jesus are enabled by and through his spirit to have influence in the world, that we as members of of God's kingdom can preserve the world from completely rotting in sin, and we can shine forth as lights in the midst of darkness. And the way that we preserve the world and shine in the world is through allowing God's spirit to work in us the righteousness of the kingdom, a righteousness that's expressed and spelled out in the Beatitudes that happened in the preceding verses. So this righteousness of the Beatitudes is something that God's Spirit is forming in all of his true children, um, and it reveals itself in good works. That's Matthew 5.16, right? It says there that, that we do all these things, our light shines forth so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So God is able to use our lives for the good of the world and for his glory, and he does that as we seek to live the flourishing life that's described for us in the Beatitudes. Do you remember that connection? Beatitudes help us to be salt and light. So my burden two weeks ago, as best I could discern it, was to say that each of us who are children of God through faith in Jesus are able to live lives of influence, no matter where we are at or how small we think that influence might be. We are able, right where we are, to keep the world from rotting completely, and to bring light into the darkness that surrounds us. And we don't ever have to make it onto a list of people that are recognized for their influence. Rather, we must simply allow the Spirit of Jesus living in us to form his character in us, and then that character 
that's expressed in these Beatitudes as we live it in the world. It, it speaks forth the hope of the gospel. It shines like a light. And others see our good works and they glorify our Father in heaven. We're all able to have that kind of influence. So flowing from that sermon and those thoughts, this, this other question and burden sort of came into my heart, which is how do the Beatitudes and the character of Jesus and the, new, and the new kingdom, how do those things work as salt and light in the world? And more specifically, how do those first four Beatitudes function as salt and light in the world? I think it's easy to make the connection between uh, being merciful and being pure in heart and being peacemakers and how those kinds of things can preserve and light the world. That, that makes sense. If we're merciful people, if we're pure in heart, if we are making peace, that, that's salt and light in the world. And we can even see the connection of, of persecution, that when we are salt and light, people will persecute us. Remember, we get a little too close for comfort. And it would seem that this call to be salt and light is an encouragement that when the inevitable difficulty comes, don't give up. Keep, keep pressing forward to be salt and light in the world. But the question that was in my heart is, how do, how do poverty of spirit and mourning over sin and meekness and longing for righteousness, how do those things work into our culture like preserving salt? How do those things shine as light? How do they lead people to glorify, to glorify God? Could your brokenness and my brokenness be a means of influencing the world? Could a kingdom that's made up of a bunch of broken people actually bring goodness and light into the world. In the middle of 1 Samuel, David has been anointed as the next king of Israel, but Saul is still on the throne. And so not surprisingly, David finds himself as Saul's enemy and as the target of Saul's very literal spears. And so David, scared for his life, heads for the hills. And in 1 Samuel 22, we find David in a cave. And we're told this in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. It says, Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David and he became commander over them and there were with him about 400 men. Who was with him? People in distress, people in debt, and people who were bitter in soul. It's quite the ragtag group that forms the army of David. The they, they come to this king who's hiding out in a cave and they're distressed and they're in debt and they're embittered. And yet the Lord uses this motley crew to help David and to protect David and to embolden David. And I imagine that from this group certainly arose some, if not all, of these guys that are later described as David's mighty men who are marked for their, their courage and their loyalty. The circumstances that they came to David in were very bleak, but their, their neediness did not define them. And in David, they found a leader that was worth following and a, and a king worth living and dying for. They had nothing to lose. They had everything to gain by supporting him. And they, they didn't let their brokenness allow, they didn't let their brokenness be an excuse for coming and being a part of this, this kingdom. Now, why do I bring that story up? As I think about that group that's gathered around David, it, it reminds me of the group that's gathered around Jesus. And even the kind of people that, are, that Jesus is describing that are a part of his kingdom. 
Jake introduced and read so well for us from Matthew 8. Did you see the people there? It's that narrative that immediately follows the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount ends in chapter seven, and then we read chapter eight. And what strikes me about all those people that come to Jesus is how they're all kneeling before him and they're all admitting their brokenness and they're all admitting their, their need before him. And that's true throughout the gospels. The gospel writers don't try to paint a picture of all the influential and rich people who come to Jesus. They're not like us. We love to tell everyone when a celebrity becomes a Christian. Jesus isn't concerned about the status of the people around him. They don't drop the names of powerful leaders that were a part of the early church. And they don't pretend like the disciples had it all together. The people that are flocking to Jesus were those who recognized their sin and fell on their knees before Jesus and recognized him as the source of all power. So the parallels to David and his followers aren't perfect, but maybe you can see that God is often pleased to use broken people and even to use the brokenness of people for good in this world. Paul says he uses the foolish and the weak and the despised to confound and confuse the wise of the world. When we think about how we might be salt and light in the world, I think the temptation is to emphasize our strengths and to assume that our strengths are what God is going to use to influence the world. That our giftedness will preserve and light the world. We want to come to the kingdom with a resume in hand, a resume with our list of achievements and our strengths. And we want to hide all of our weaknesses because our weaknesses aren't going to be used in the kingdom. It's our strengths that are going to be used, right? If we have weaknesses, we want to hide those. We're like Michael Scott in a job interview where he lists his weaknesses. I work too hard. I care too much. And sometimes I can be too invested in my job, which are not weaknesses, right? Because people with weaknesses can't influence the world. Poor, mourning, meek, hungry people, they don't have an eternal impact on society, right? Or do they? That's what Jesus is saying. And what I'm struck by as we connect these first four Beatitudes with the call to be salt and light is that they reveal that living out of our brokenness and not hiding it is actually how God wants to change the world through us. The world has enough people that are pretending to have it all together, okay? There's enough perfect profile pictures and long lists of Facebook followers. There's enough self-made millionaires. There's enough people who boast about their power or their influence or their intellect or their achievement, about who they think they are. If the world is going to be kept from decomposing and descending into complete darkness, then it needs a group of kingdom people that are living in this world that are poor and that are mourning and that are meek and that are hungry and that are thirsty. I want to invite you to embrace your brokenness. It can change the world. That's, that's our big idea. Embrace your brokenness. It can change the world. Do you want to be salt and light? Do you want to have an eternal influence in the place where God has placed you? And I think at least part of what Jesus is calling us to do through the Beatitudes is to embrace our brokenness. Embrace your brokenness. It can change the world. As we live in the Beatitudes 
in the world, we are salt and light. And as salt and light, part of what we're doing is we're reflecting God to others. So we're members of, of God's kingdom. And so we reflect the kind of king that we serve. And, and it's as people behold who God is through us, that they, they fall before God in humility and they fall in love with who he is. So I wanna offer four incomplete thoughts about how the first four Beatitudes reveal who God is and therefore function as salt and light. I call them incomplete because there's surely more that could be said about how these four Beatitudes help us to function as salt and light. But I wanna think about it as if we live this way, what does it reveal about who God is? And as we reveal who God is with our lives, how is that drawing people to him for his glory and for their good? So first, thinking about poverty of spirit. Our poverty of spirit exalts God as the only source of good. How does poverty of spirit work as salt and light? Our poverty of spirit exalts God as the only source of good. So by way of review, because this was a while back, I think in July maybe, to be poor in spirit is to know our spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's to readily and freely acknowledge that we have nothing that we can bring to God of spiritual value that can somehow merit our salvation. We come to God with the debit card of our lives and every time we try to pay, the register says to our shame, insufficient funds. Have you ever had that happen? That is not a fun feeling, is it? Uh, insufficient funds. In, in fact, it's far worse than that because we're not just trying to buy something that we want. We're trying to pay off a massive debt that we owe and we will never have enough money to do it. Poverty of spirit recognizes that. So the character of a child of God through faith in Jesus, the character of a member of God's kingdom is that they are, they are poor in spirit. They recognize their spiritual poverty. And by recognizing that poverty, we are enabled in Christ to be made rich. Jesus makes us rich. He, he pays the sin debt that we owe and he fills us with the riches of his righteousness and the fathomless power of his spirit. That's the gospel, that we are penniless and dead. And Jesus gives us new life and the riches of salvation through faith in him. If you came in here today thinking that your strengths are what you need to bring to God for salvation, then I have good news for you. You have no strengths. <laughs> you are helpless. And so the good news is you can stop working so hard and you can trust that Jesus has come to save everyone who realizes they are helpless and that they are in need. You can repent of your sin and you can repent of your attempts to earn righteousness and you can rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus and in the death that he died to pay for your sin. So how does being poor in spirit function as salt and light in this world? Again, I can't tell you everywhere, but I think part of what it does is it, it, it diffuses the prideful competition for glory that we're all fighting each other for. We're all trying to look good. We're all trying to exalt ourselves. But to be continually growing in our awareness of our spiritual bankruptcy before God, it causes us to consistently seek to give God glory in any good thing that we do. And therefore, we don't care about our own glory. We're not competing with other people to be recognized. And that's a very strange thing in this world. It's a very salty thing in this world. It's a very bright, light-giving thing in this world to not be worried about your own glory, but seeking to glorify God. 
Practically, that, that could mean deflecting glory when others praise you. Recognizing your poverty before others. Or it could mean, as Jesus talks about later in the Sermon on the Mount, it could mean doing things in secret so that no one knows about them. Trying to, to keep people from giving you glory by doing it so that no one knows. The world was made for God's glory. And so are we. The chief end of, of men and women is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And when we are poor in spirit and we honor God as the source of all good in us and in the world, then we shine like a light, continually reminding others that there's something outside of them, that there is a, a kingdom that they are made for that has nothing to do with their glory and has nothing to do with their reputation, that there's more to life than bank accounts and houses and toys and vacations and anything else. There's more to life than the next promotion. There's more to life than rising in rank in some way. We show that as we embrace our poverty of spirit and we honor God as the source of all good. So embrace your brokenness. It can change the world. How? By revealing God to others. And when we see our poverty, that our poverty of spirit exalts God as the only source of good, and when we, we look that way, we shine forth that way, people start to long for his kingdom more because they recognize something outside themselves. So our poverty of spirit exalts God as the only source of good. Second, about mourning. Our mourning over sin models God's heart towards sin. When we mourn over sin, we model God's heart towards sin. When you mourn over sin, you're, you're responding to its presence in you and in the world in the same way that you respond to the presence of death in your life. Our response to death is very complicated, but at its core, there are emotions of sorrow and anger. We shed tears for what's been lost and our eternal souls say that this is wrong. There's something wrong with this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. If you want to look and see someone respond with sorrow and anger to death, you look at Jesus at the death of Lazarus where he weeps with Martha and Mary, but he also, we're told, he is provoked in his spirit. He's outraged at what sin has done in the world. So when we mourn over the sin that's in us and in our, in, in our world, we announce that sin is heartbreaking and that sin is deadly serious. Both. It can be both things. Sin can be heartbreaking and induce sorrow in us, but it can also be deadly serious. We weep at, at sin's stranglehold on us and on those that we love. We weep at the pain and hurt that sin causes in this world. And we also shake our fist at it and say, man, I want this to be destroyed in this world. I hate sin. This response of, of sorrow and anger, of seeing sin as heartbreaking and also deadly serious, that's salt and light in our world because our world has no idea how to respond rightly to sin. Our culture calls good evil and evil good. And sometimes it refuses to call anything evil. When wickedness shows up, our culture knows how to condemn it, but it doesn't know how to bring any forgiveness and light. It ignores the sadness that follows sin, and it ignores the destruction that comes with sin as well. 
We don't know how, apart from God's grace and apart from His Spirit opening our eyes, we don't know how to respond to the evil that's in this world. But as followers of Jesus, we can come in some way and reflect what it looks like to grieve over sin and therefore be compassionate with people. But we can also hate sin. We can see the goodness of holiness and purity. We can stand beside someone and and weep with them at the results of their sin and also call them out of it and say, don't do this anymore. That's what mourning over sin does in this world. And not just sin in our world, but sin in us as individuals and as a church. You can't hide it when you're mourning, right? If you're really mourning about something, everybody knows it. And when they ask what's wrong when you're mourning, you usually freely share that, right? What if we did the same with our sin? If we wore our sorrow on our sleeve and we shared freely about the struggles that we have with sin. When we share about how we are mourning over and fighting against sin and temptation, we open the door for other people to say, yeah, me too. There's a light that can shine in and and gives people the freedom to say, yeah, I don't have it all together either. We bring our, our sorrow over our sin into the light and then it loses our, its power. It loses its power over us, but it, it, it also loses its power over the person that we've opened up to. They hear us say, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm not happy every day. <laughs> Sometimes I struggle and sin is difficult and they're encouraged to fight alongside us. That's not always the case. I was talking to a friend recently and he has been more than open and honest about his struggle with sin. And it's led to feelings of deep loneliness and isolation because no one else wants to be honest. Because he's brutally honest about what he's wrestling with and everyone else just wants to kind of hide and pretend like they don't struggle with things. And so there's a risk. I'm thankful for my friend because he's been brave and he's opened up and it's brought light into his life and light into my life and light into some people, but he's also felt very alone. So it's a risk to mourn for our sin publicly, to let people know that we are sorrowful over things and to wrestle with what sin's doing in our lives and in the world and how we're responding to it. But I hope it's not a risk here, at least not as big of a risk. Of course, it's a risk anywhere. None of us are perfect. But I would hope that we're a place where we can share how sin is in us and in the world and how it's affecting us and that there's people that would come alongside and stand with us just like we would stand with someone who's mourning, who's grieving over the loss of a loved one, that we would weep with those who weep and we would help people process their frustration and their anger with the sin in the world and the sin in others as I think about that, as I think about people mourning over sin with one another, as we are honest about it in our lives and its effect on us, the honesty of those kind of private conversations are going to bring more light into the world than all of the fake conversations that we're tempted to have where we never admit that anything's wrong. If you want to bring light into the world, mourn over sin and mourn with one another. Be honest about the sorrow that sin brings and be honest about the anger that it causes, and process that with other people, that brings light. It brings salt into the world. 
So embrace your brokenness because it can change the world. Your mourning over sin will allow people to see how God views sin and therefore know how to respond to it. Third, our meekness displays God's gentle patience and kindness. Our meekness displays God's gentle patience and kindness. A few reminders from the Sermon on Meekness of what Jesus is talking about here. Lloyd-Jones says, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. And then John Stott says, Therefore, this makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, patient in all his dealings with others. Remember that meekness follows our poverty of spirit and our mourning over sin. So having a proper view of ourselves, being humbled by the reality of our spiritual bankruptcy, being grieved to mourning by the reality of our sin, we rightly review our relationship with God and with others, which means that we, we interact with God and with others with a spirit of deep humility and with patience and with gentleness. We treat people with gentleness, humility, sensitivity, patience, knowing that they're broken just like us. And as you think about the connection to salt and light, here's what I want to say. Don't buy the lie that gentle, humble, sensitive, patient people have no influence. Those are the people that changed your life. Humble, sensitive, patient, gentle people are the ones that that have, that have changed me. They're the ones who listened to me. They're the ones who helped me. People that, that were mean to me when I was struggling and sorrowful are not people that I look back on my life and say, wow, they've really changed my life for good. They brought a lot of light into my life. No. People that are sensitive and, and helpful and humble, they are the ones that have walked with us through the most difficult of days. And they cause us to grow in patience and in kindness. They reveal God to us and they are salt and light in our world. The meek, it would seem, are not seeking to establish a kingdom for themselves. Remember, because they're holding on to this promise. What are the meek going to get? The whole earth. The meek will inherit the earth. There's, there's a kingdom yet to come. And when you live in that reality, all of this jockeying for position in the earthly kingdom feels pretty foolish, and we instead become those that are seeking the lowest seat, seeking to help everyone. Why? Because in the end, it's the last who are first. It's those that are meek. It's those that are gentle. It's those that are supporting. There's a lot of, um, a lot that's done in meekness and gentleness and quietness that does not get recognized, but changes the world. The picture that comes to my mind is just of the many mothers around the world. Moms are gentle and humble and meek. You're not all perfect. Okay, some dads are gentle and meek sometimes, but you know, I get the picture of a mom. And our moms were gentle and meek and kind and patient with us. And they've shaped us into the people that we are in many ways. And so don't despise those small things. That's salt and light in the world. Very quickly, our, and fourth, our, our longing for righteousness reveals God's purpose for all people. 
our longing for righteousness reveals God's purpose for all people. I will admit I've got a lot more thinking to do on this one, but I'll give you what I got for now. We spoke a bit about this already, but when we long for righteousness, we show people that they've been created for a different world. That, that they have appetites for heavenly fruit that can only be tasted as they walk by the Spirit and by faith. Our, our hungering for righteousness can infuriate people. It can be salty. But it can also reveal like light. It can reveal in them a hunger and a thirst that they didn't know that they had. The people who reject the, the, the righteousness that Jesus calls us into see it in us and say, actually, that makes sense of this world. There's, there's a longing to walk in the ways of, of, of a Christian who's walking with the Spirit, who's living out these Beatitudes. There's a, a longing to, to be made an image bearer of God, to, to show forth God's character in this world. And as much as people reject it, they, they start to long for it. As you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you preserve and you light the world. The righteousness that comes through faith results in good works that people see and they, they long to glorify God by walking in the ways of His kingdom. Before we consider Jesus, I just want again to emphasize, we ended that the last sermon that we had in the, in the Beatitudes by saying that everyone is able to have influence and I still even think when we say that, that we imagine that the influence is going to come from somehow the great things that we're going to do. But what an amazing thing that Jesus is actually saying, no, it's actually your brokenness and living in that brokenness that will have deep influence. It's actually when you, are, when you continually live in your poverty of spirit and seek to glorify me, that's how you're salt and light in the world. When you're, when you're mourning for sin, and you're being honest about the struggles that you have, that brings light in the world. When you're meek and gentle and quiet, that brings light into the world. And when you're just quietly longing after righteousness and seeking to live a life that walks in the ways of Christ, that brings light into the world. Don't think that it's something giant. And as you think about Jesus, you think about the humble life that he lived and the deep lasting influence that he has had. Jesus is the greatest expression of, of God to ever walk the earth because he was God himself. And Jesus constantly pointed to the Father as the only source of good. You remember that, that he, uh, someone came to him and said, good teacher, and Jesus says, there's only one who's good, it's God. Jesus was always pointing people to the, to the glory of the Father that he shared. His life exemplified righteousness and he announced that there was none good but the Father. He also re he revealed God's heart towards sin better than any of us could, didn't he? He wept over sin's effects, but he was also angered by unbelief and by wickedness. He held those things in tension so well. And he took sin seriously, deadly seriously. He wasn't willing to dismiss the requirement of death for sin. Rather, he took it on himself. He realized how much sin was going to cost. 
the meekness of Jesus revealed God's heart of gentle patience and kindness. Jesus shows us what it meant to be, what it means to be truly human, to truly live for God's glory and to walk in righteousness, to be an image bearer of God in the world. And in his poverty of spirit, his mourning over sin, his meekness, his longing for righteousness, this Jesus, just this unassuming carpenter from Nazareth became the brightest light in the world, became the thing that has preserved goodness for centuries. Jesus is, is so much light that he's called the light of the whole world simply by walking in these ways. And he invites us to, to do the same. He invites us by the power of his spirit to embrace our brokenness. And as we embrace our brokenness, we embrace Jesus as our salvation. And when we do that, we can change the world. Not because uh, we move on from poverty and meekness and mourning, but because we allow their presence in our lives to reveal God's character to the world. And as people see us walking in these ways, the world is changed and people are led not to glorify us, but to glorify God. Well, unlike those great motivational posters, you're not going to probably find the Beatitudes on the walls of many Fortune 500 companies. I don't think. Maybe. But as you think about big companies and other people that are seen as influential in this world, re remember that um, not much, if any, of what they do will have eternal influence in the world. But what we do as God's people in God's kingdom, as we live in brokenness, and as we live as those that are in debt and embittered and mourning and poor and meek and hungry and thirsty, we are changing the world. We're bringing light into the world. We are preserving the world. So I invite you to embrace your brokenness. I invite you to not pretend that you've got it all together. It's okay not to be okay. And let's live like that together. It's, it's going to be messy. You get a whole bunch of people, and you think about that group that was with David. That was a mess. I can't imagine what that was like. And so if the church is really going to embrace this and say, yeah, we'd like all the mourning people. We'd like all the poor in spirit people, everyone who's hungry and thirsty. We'd like all those that are meek and gentle. It's going to be a little messy. But it can change the world. So maybe it's worth it.